Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the stage, Ken Weinstein. Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. Prime Minister, you embody the best of Herman Kahn's quality. Herman Kahn's qualities. No international leader has stood more firmly against Islamic terror, and you did so long before most of America and the world even knew what it was. From the unspeakable pain of family tragedy, you answered a calling to work for a safer and more secure world, literally taking a bullet in the fight against terrorism. And no international leader has spoken out more forcefully against the Iranian nuclear program. As an American, I am profoundly grateful to you for your willingness to warn our Congress about the dangers of the Iran deal. In a region filled with unbounded turmoil, you remain a force of calm strength in, a, in assuring the security of more than 8 million Israelis. You have also created vast opportunities for Israel and its citizens. On the diplomatic front, you've built visibly strong ties in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and less visible but no less important ones in the Arab world. And no world leader has done more to transform his country's economy, to open markets, to deregulate, and to turn your country into startup nation, the model for the developed world. All while confronting security challenges few can imagine having to face on a daily basis. As a Jew, I am always proud to travel to the state of Israel, a strong and flourishing Israel which our ancestors dreamed of for two millennia is the greatest miracle of our lifetime, bar none. In the new Israel you have built, it is not only standing before the Kotel, the Western Wall, that moves me deeply. It is driving on the Ayalon Freeway through Tel Aviv, seeing skyscrapers that proclaim Israel an economic powerhouse. It is for these reasons and many others that you are Hudson Institute's 2016 Herman Kahn Awardee. Now you've faced extraordinary challenges, Mr. Prime Minister. Hamas, Hezbollah, a recalcitrant Palestinian authority, a sometimes harsh domestic opposition, and an American administration not always willing to heed your friendly advice. But these were just a foreshadowing. The real test lays before you tonight. That's because we've asked Roger Hertog, the president of the Hertog Foundation and the chair of the Tikva Fund to engage you in serious conversation. Anyone who has sat across from Roger and been questioned by him knows that the experience is probably New York's most effective weight loss program. Without surgery or sessions with a personal trainer, in the hour you spend across from Roger, you're guaranteed to lose at least five pounds, in sweat, that is. Roger, you grilled me for the first time about two decades ago. And the questions 
you threw at me, they still resonate today. The perspiration, though, has dried. And they resonate, Roger, because you, like Herman Kahn, focused not on the easy questions, but on the tough ones, the ones that matter in the long term. After an immensely successful career in business, you turned your mind and your resources to strengthening both the US and Israel. No philanthropist I know has spent more time thinking deeply, asking hard questions about the future of the US, the future of Israel, and the Jewish people and the US-Israel relationship than you have. Ladies and gentlemen, I am, I am deeply honored to welcome you, Roger Hertog, and His Excellency the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, to our stage. get any of these security guards, by the way. <laughs> Should be a highly appropriate thing here. Well, if you ask me tough questions, they respond. <laughs> <laughs> you should take that into account. So first, Mr. Prime Minister, it is obviously a great honor to be in Congress. Okay. Is it better now? Yes. I'm a little hard of hearing also, so believe me, we're in the same boat here. <clears throat> I said it's really a great honor to be in conversation with the Prime Minister. And I think it's important to state up front how consequential a Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been, and how adroitly he's navigated the most difficult circumstances, the environment, at both home, at home and abroad. For all of those who love the Jewish state, and I know many people in this room do, we thank you for having led us from strength to strength. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So let's begin. Can I say one thing? I knew it. I knew it. Will you allow me? Sure. Well, this is the Hudson Institute. And uh, Ken Weinstein just said that I exemplify uh, the great attributes of Herman Kahn. One thing I hope, I don't exemplify all his attributes. <laughs> uh, but I read, um, I read Herman Kahn in my distant youth, and I remember that uh, uh, Herman Kahn wrote about obviously, about many interesting, gripping things. Interesting is not a word. Uh, vital things uh, for strategy uh, that affect the life of nations. You've been uh, kind enough to give me a privileged seat, Sarah and me, next to Nancy and Henry Kissinger. And I'm plugging Henry's books on China and world order. I actually read them very recently. 
and they're illuminating and instructive. But I remember one of Herman's cons, one of his uh, predictions. He said, uh, speaking about the declining cost of computation, he was speaking to uh, a hall full of uh, uh, engineers, uh, that is of uh, people who deal with the digital engineering. And he said, you see, the cost of computation is, this was 1960, by 1968, it'll go down like this. He drew a curve. And one of the engineers gets up, really red-faced, very angry. And he says, that's easy for you to say. We have to do it. <laughs> it's very kind of you to say all the things. We have to do it. But we do do it. And you're very kind to. Uh, Recognize that. I appreciate that very deeply. Thank you all. Thank you very much. So let's talk a little about some of those things you have to do. So I think it's fair to say, almost everyone here would agree, one of your greatest accomplishments was as finance minister in the early 2000s, when you en enacted truly extraordinary reforms that opened up the Israeli economy to competition, innovation, and rapid growth. Proving once again, you are a man of ideas, and those ideas have mattered. We're also pr proud and mightily impressed by Startup Nation. But my question is the question going forward, not the past 13 or 14 years. The old socialist traditions still linger. Bureaucracy, in many ways, appears to have calcified. Unions resist change. The government continues to own 95% of the land of Israel. 87, I brought it down, <laughs> please. 87. The economic reforms of a decade ago seem maybe not to have run its course, but lost its startup power, its ability to grow more rapidly. Isn't it possible to do more and grow faster? And what are those things that the Netanyahu government has to do to get it done? Well, the first thing is deregulation. That's regulation is required, but overregulation is not. Uh, we definitely have overregulation. I chair a few government committees. I mean, I actually chair them. And every few weeks, I bring in with my director general all the uh, relevant ministries, and we cut. We take a machete, and we cut. I'm looking for the uh, silver machete. <laughs> uh, there are a few. You'll be hearing about them. But that's goal number one because the, uh, the greatest impediment right now to uh, entrepreneurship, which is the key to economic growth, is uh, uh, holding back the power of bureaucrats and regulators, uh, holding them back and yet keeping what you need, and that's a delicate balancing act, but it's not very delicate because we're just over-regulated. So everything that you see about the Israeli economy is with this overregulation, which tells you what the potential is. I mean, 
Overregulation is like, is like a heavy boot on the coiled spring of an economy. And if you remove it, it grows. You get growth just from deregulating. So Israel is very fortunate to have overregulation because that's a growth opportunity. And if we're, we grew at 5%, now we're growing at about 3%, 3.5%, we'll kick in another 1.5%. And it's getting hard because you know, our GDP per capita has grown. You know, when we began these reforms in 2003, the per capita income of Greece was higher than ours. Things change. Um, and we have, uh, uh, we're beating the, most of the European countries, uh, quite a few of them, and I think we'll, our GDP per capita is very close to Japan's now. But we intend to uh, keep on growing, and for that we need deregulation, that's obvious. But that's the standard fare. Here's the unstandard fare. Uh, because the opportunities here are not obvious. Uh, and they actually involve, believe it or not, uh, this is a shock and I want you to fasten your seat belts. You actually need government involvement. Now, now wait a minute, no, I haven't uh, changed my religion. But it's a question of sunk costs. How do you convert sunk costs that you have to put in any way into an economy. Government does that. How do you convert that into growth, and I would say even spectacular growth? Well, two points. One, obvious. One, not obvious. The obvious one is you build roads, railroads, and so on, and we're doing that in Israel. If you come to Israel, you'll see this. I mean, it's just connecting this you think Israel was the size of Texas because it took a long time to go from one side to the other. But because we didn't have roads, we didn't have fast rail, we didn't have anything. Uh, and we're doing that now, and that, of course, creates mobility. Same thing with fast fiber that we're working on and so on. And that may be even more important. But the sunk cost that I'm talking about is something else. If you look at the greatest change that is happening in the world economy right now, in the world, it's the Internet of Things. Today you have several billion connections of the Internet of Things, and very soon you'll have a trillion and many trillions. This means that everything is connected, uh, and everything is vulnerable. Airplanes, cars, refrigerators, anything. Anything is everything and anything is going to be connected. And everything will require protection against sabotage against penetration, against governments, against crime organizations, against terrorist organizations, you name it. The need is endless. The solutions will be endless. So if you can create the capacity, the national capacity, to excel in cybersecurity, you do two things. One, you protect you ask me a question, you're actually going to get an answer. <laughs> One, you create a tremendous uh, uh, resource for security, which we all need. And nations can be brought to their heels with the cyber attacks today and tomorrow more so. So you need that. You're going to spend on it anyway. But it's also a terrific growth opportunity. Well, I fell back on the days that I, uh, you know, I. Um, 
studied at MIT. And I lived on, uh, uh, on the campus not very far away from uh, uh, the Sloan School, a few meters from there. I'd go down the elevator to the Sloan School, and I see across the street, seven meters away, a warehouse. It's an opaque warehouse, opaque windows, very ugly, bars. And I ask myself, what, what is this warehouse? I mean, there are iron pay buildings, gleaming, glistening towers, and what is this warehouse? And this is now 19, uh, I don't know, 1974. And they told me, well, it's, uh, I don't know, something, CIA, NSA, some alphabet soup like that. First time I heard of it the NSA. And, of course, that was the, uh, the nexus of government investment in intelligence, academia, that produced immediately 128 and Route 495 and one of the first two Silicon Valleys. Well, I took a leaf from that book. And what we're doing now is we're taking our NSA, which is pretty big, not as big as the American NSA, but believe me, it is a lot bigger than you might think. And we're putting it smack in Ben-Gurion University, literally in Ben-Gurion University, and our cybersecurity headquarters right there. And within 100 meters, you have three things. That, you have the university, which specializes in that, and a cyber park, which is already filled up with the world's largest cybersecurity company. And you have startups, not merely in Tel Aviv and Herzliya, but in Beersheba. Uh, I took uh, uh, Steve Forbes there, and I wanted to show him these startups. And I see this uh, a familiar face. Kid must be 25 years old, something like that. And I said, you, you look familiar. And he says, Mr. Prime Minister, you don't remember me? I was your Unit 8200 briefer. I said, yeah, that's right. And what are you doing now? He says, now? Now I'm rich. <laughs> so I want you to have an appreciation of this. We're putting that money anyway. But if we create the environment which we are, for this cyber park explosion, these cyber companies, hundreds and hundreds of them, then we can affect tremendous economic growth. So here's a number. In 2014, uh, Israel had about 10% of the total private global investment in cybersecurity. In 2015, it doubled to 20%. In 2016, it keeps growing. We're a country of 8 million people. We're one-tenth of 1% 1 of the world's population. In cybersecurity, we're punching over 200 times our weight. We are a cyber power. Five years ago, when uh, I announced that we we're going to go in that direction, I said that we'd be one of the five cyber security powers in the world. We're definitely not number five. We could argue if we're number four or number three, but we're there. The implications of that is enormous 
for our future economy, enormous. And that is one example of where our economy is going to grow. It's the nexus, the intersection of big data, connectivity, internet, and artificial intelligence and deep learning. And we do very, very well in that. That's the growth area. And I sure as hell am not going to let regulation interfere with that. Uh, we're, I actually prevented regulation now on the cyber industry, and we're taking a risk, because it's like the exportation of arms. But I want to encourage this growth. So this is a long answer to, a, well, a fairly important question. Israel's best economic days are ahead, because we're right up there in the future economy. The future is now, and Israel is right in it. So if you're uh, thinking of where to invest, are you thinking where to invest? <laughs> invest in Israel. It hasn't even begun. So let me, I want to talk about another growth opportunity. It may be disguised right now, but I want to talk about another growth opportunity. While most of the populations in the West are declining, the population in Israel is growing, and growing quite rapidly, which is a real positive sign in many ways. But the most rapid growth is among the, among the ultra-Orthodox and the Israeli Arabs, who today represent an astounding 50% of all grade school children in Israel. This demographic shift has enormous opportunity associated with it, but also could cause substantial social and cultural changes over time, since currently neither group pulls its weight in terms of being part of the workforce and the workforce at a high level, and in terms of their military service. My question is, what policies are you putting into place, and how far can you go with this? This is a, a tender political question, issue, in the state, but it has enormous implications. Well, I agree with you. I, I think that you should be aware that we've made, there are two things that you should be aware of. The first is that the uh, birth rate in non-Orthodox non-Arab uh, Israeli Jews is by far, take that away, is by far the highest in the Western world. It's an interesting question why these uh, uh, secular, moderate, orthodox families are so large in Israel. But I suspect it has something to do with our history, with the experience of uh, the rise of Israel, post-Holocaust, and so on. It's, it's a very high birth rate. The other thing you should be aware of is that the birth rate of the Orthodox, uh, and especially of the Arabs, has gone down significantly because of the uh, cuts that we put in welfare. And frankly, I had something to do with it, especially in 2003 when we cut child allowances dr drastically and basically uh, uh, got people to go to work. So here's what is the gap, the gap between a Muslim woman and a Jewish woman right now in Israel. It used to be six to three, and you know what that means, what that would have meant. Uh, but it's gone down, it's now a little less than uh, half a child statistically. So 
three, I think, to 2.8, something like that. So that's now the gap enormously. But uh, equally, what has happened is that people go to work. So here's, here's an astounding figure. Uh, Haredi, ultra-Orthodox women, uh, participate in the workforce exactly like the general population. My prediction is they're going to outstrip the general population because they see, you know, some of them are very smart, and they work in high tech, and there's no way that you can match what they're making by some government kitzba, uh, uh, Ron, kitzba. What? Payment. Payment. Whatever. Welfare. Okay. There's no way that it compares, so you're going to see more and more movement of that. Uh, and the other good news is that Arab men, Arab-Israeli men, work exactly the same rate as the Israeli workforce, the general workforce. Where we have the gaps are two places. One, Haredi men, they're up, uh, the general workforce is about 80% participation. Haredi workforces went from 37% to 52%, and we have a ways to kick them up, but uh, right up to the general population, but we're working on it with a variety of uh, uh, stimuli and other means, but it'll happen. And the biggest challenge we have is uh, Israeli-Arab women. Uh, they're at 32%, so we have a gap of about 50%. How do you cover that gap? First thing you do, you know, you have to encourage both a cultural change, but much more so, much more practical, as you have to do daycare centers. You know, you have to build daycare centers. So we're just investing now about 13 billion shekels in the Arab sector on a multi-year program. That's the biggest investment in our Arab citizens in the history of Israel. Nothing even comes closer to it. The closest thing is another billion shekel program that I put in four years ago. People don't know that. I mean, I know you read about that in the New York Times every day, but, uh, <laughs> but we're, we're committed to integrating all our citizens in this growth economy. So number one, create daycare centers. Number two, transport. Transportation, just enable them to go to these companies and so on. So if we get that, I think you're gonna get two things. Uh, one is, uh, I think you'll get an evening out of the birth rates completely. That's happened already. That's happening as we speak. But the second thing that you're gonna get is a much stronger and robust Israeli economy. We have more demand on our high tech than we can possibly supply with the existing workforce. So we're preparing kids, we're trying to get uh, you know, advanced mathematics down into the uh, education level and so on, to kindergarten really. But how, however many we have, we have to tap in into the Haredi population and the Arab population. We're absolutely committed, I'm committed to getting it. The other thing is, and this is gonna shock you, we're gonna import workers. You know, do you ever hear of Silicon Valley? What do you hear there? You hear Indian dialects in Hebrew, right? Uh, well, why shouldn't we do the same thing? And I've relaxed the limitations on importing uh, foreign workers uh, for uh, the high-tech industry. So I'm actually quite hopeful. I think we're gonna beat the odds. We've always beat the odds. Um, and I think we'll beat them here too. Uh, we're not looking aside at what you're saying. We're looking right into it and working to change it. 
by uh, getting people to work and getting them to seize the future in the present. That's what we're doing. Well, the opportunity is immense, but very few people have captured it. I'm sure you will. There are very, this is, this is a big, big there challenge. There you Herman Kahn again, you know. <laughs> we have to do it, but we will. So let's, let's, let me move to a question on foreign policy. So in 2015, Brett Stevens from the Wall Street Journal wrote what I thought was one of the most powerful articles called Israel Alone. The theme was that Israel needed to develop its own grand strategy and not be so dependent on the US. In a word, Stevens said, the Israelis haven't yet figured out that what America is isn't what America was. They need to start thinking about what comes next, end of quote. Once again, you have certainly been on the forefront, real leadership in thinking about what comes next. Deepening relationships with Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Greece, China, Africa. But my question is about Russia. You visited Moscow five times in the fa past 15 months. News reports suggest- uh, Four. Four? Actually, I think three and one meeting in uh, Paris. Okay, I, I'm just being I, I got my information from the New York Times, so. <laughs> the news report suggests regular phone calls with Vladimir Putin. Given Putin's support of Assad, his expanded military bases in Syria, something, by the way, that hasn't happened since Dr. Kissinger brilliantly created, pushed the Soviet Union then out of the Middle East, but today Russia is back. Putin sails to Iran of his S-300 surface-to-air missile, which military experts have said is a game changer in the region, and many observe Putin as Iran's staunchest ally. I understand, I think everyone here understands what Israel's interest is in building a stronger relationship with Russia. My question is, what is Russia's interest in building a stronger relationship with Israel? I think Russia has a, a variegated interests. Uh, the first interest is uh, to make sure that militant Islam doesn't penetrate and destabilize Russia. There are many, many uh, millions of uh, Muslims in Russia, including in greater Moscow. I think it's up to two million. Uh, and the uh, concern that uh, Russia has, which many other countries have, is that these populations would be radicalized. And so I think that explains part, not all, but part of what uh, um, Mr. Putin is doing in Syria. I think they'd like to uh, cut it at the source, as do others. Uh, obviously, the United States would like to do it, and uh, the other countries that are participating in the coalition. Now, the first thing is block uh, militant Islam at its source, uh, and especially the Daesh uh, phenomenon. Uh, for that, they make strange alliances. Uh, 
and we, I've said to uh, President Putin head on, you know, the last thing we want to see, fighting Daesh is fine, and Israel's uh, capabilities are not unimportant here, uh, but, you know, we don't want to see in an aftermath in Syria, whether with an agreement or without an agreement, we don't want to see an Iranian military presence. We don't want to see Shiite militias, which Iran is organizing from Afghanistan, from Pakistan. Uh, and we certainly don't want to see Iranian game-changing weapons being transferred through Syrian territory to Hezbollah in Lebanon. And when we see it, we block it. Uh, we do not allow these transfers to go through if we can see them. We do not allow Iran to form uh, a second terror front on our borders, uh, and we act against that. Uh, and I said to, when I went to see him um, uh, the beginning, uh, about a year ago, when he put his military forces in Syria, I said, look, this is, this is our policy. These are my red lines, and I'll act on them. Uh, we have a choice. We can coordinate uh, in order not to crash and clash with each other. Uh, I mean, I said we can actually have our forces shoot down each other's planes. I think a few weeks later something happened to that effect, but not with <laughs> Israel. Uh, or we can avoid it. So periodically we have to sort of tighten the bolts because not everything that is said at the top necessarily reaches uh, the bottom levels field levels, uh, they do on the Israeli side, but they don't necessarily uh, always do so uh, on the other side. So the first thing is, the second thing is we want to avoid a clash. What is uh, Mr. Putin's interest? He definitely doesn't want to have uh, that happen. Third interest, I think, is that he wants technology. He's interested in technology. Israel is a global source of technology in many areas that are of interest to Russia, agriculture, dairy production. You name it, the standard fare. Uh, so for all these reasons, and also this, uh, you know, there's a cultural human bridge. We have a million Russian speakers in Israel. Uh, these and other reasons, I think, uh, inform uh, Russia's policies. And it's, uh, I think it's very important that we have this relationship. But I want to comment on the uh, uh, premise of your question. Uh, first of all, I don't think there's a substitute uh, or an alternative for Israel's tremendous alliance with the United States. This is, uh, this is uh, the first alliance and the irreplaceable alliance, and I'll tell you why. We are having a flourishing of our relations with many countries around the world, and those relationships are based on shared interests. With the United States, we certainly have shared interests, but it's the one alliance we have, and there may be one or two others, but nothing like this, that is based on shared values. And if you track, as the Gallup poll does every year, just keeps a tracking poll, and you can see this develop over time, it's quite amazing and you see the support of the American public for Israel. It's up to 71% uh, right now. I think the Palestinians get about 18%. It's flat, like the EKG of uh, a dead person. 
Uh, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But we are going up and up and up. And I have to tell you this, I mean, this may come as a shock, but it's gone up in my tenure, including in the last year. Uh, uh, 71 and I think it's 19, gives you 90. There's still room to go. But this is the source of uh, this tremendous alliance. It's the identification of the American people that Israel is like the United States and the United States is like Israel. And this is one of the few areas, the only area, that I agree with the militant Islamists. They say, you are them and they are you. On this one, they're right. This is a, this is a powerful alliance. Uh, the other alliances, the other relations that we have are based basically on two things, and they appear in our relations with Russia, as they appear in our relations with India, with China, uh, with Japan, you know, the small powers of Asia, uh, with Africa, uh, with Vietnam, with well, Singapore. Prime Minister Lee just visited Israel, even though we've had relations with them for many decades. He just came. Japan just uh, uh, concluded, is now concluding with us uh, a uh, protection of investment deal, very important for Japanese investors because they're very conservative. But they're doing that. Uh, with China, we're negotiating a free trade area. We wanted it for uh, many years, but they came to us this year. Uh, and the same thing is happening in the Eastern Mediterranean with Turkey, uh, with whom we've normalized relations, Greece and Cyprus, with whom we, had, uh, we have a special relationship. Uh, same thing is true with the countries of Africa. I've just come from a tremendous meeting in the UN. I've been there. Sarah and I were there uh, two months ago on just an unforgettable and moving visit to four African countries. Now we met many, many more African leaders who came to a conference on Israel's technology in the United Nations. Uh, they showed there everything, water, hydroponics, energy, uh, health. Uh, you want to hear this? painless circumcision against the spread of AIDS. Talk about cutting-edge technology. I mean, I mean, I was amazed. I didn't know this. Uh, and Latin America, uh, uh, Argentina, Mr. Macri called me up right after he was elected. He said, I want to meet you. We met in uh, Davos in Switzerland. He said, I'm changing the policy. Uh, same thing is happening with the other, I predict it's going to happen with Brazil now, but it's happening throughout Latin America. Why are these countries coming to us? TNT, terror and technology. Israel is a global power in fighting terrorism because of our intelligence and other proven capabilities. Israel is a global power in technology. All countries need technology for the reasons I mentioned before, a few I didn't, but the future truly belongs to those who innovate and so because of this confluence of security uh, and technology, countries are coming to Israel, including Russia and including the other countries that, uh, many other countries. And that's changing fundamentally our position in the world. I said today at the UN that I predict that in 10 years, I think it'll happen before, the automatic majorities in the UN are gonna disappear. The automatic majority rests on the 54 countries of the African bloc, and the African countries are coming to us every day, including today. So I think that's going to change. 
and it's going to present a problem to a future Israeli prime minister. How will he give a speech applauding the UN? But <laughs> he or she will get over it, uh, as I did today. Uh, so I think that this explains all the countries, but it doesn't explain the United States. The United States is something else. It is the relationship that I and the people of Israel most treasure. It transcends politics. It's expressed in the MOU, record MOU that we just signed. And I'm deeply appreciative of the uh, action that was taken by President Obama in this. I know that it's supported across the board, bipartisan support. This is very powerful and irreplaceable, and it will continue. So I think Sarah Stern is about to come up here. So I, I, am, I have many more questions, but I have one personal one. Not appropriate to, use, to usually do personal ones, but this I think it is. So for over 3,000 years, Jews have prayed to God for the reestablishment of Zion and Jerusalem. Yet Israel was established largely by men and women who were uncertain about God. What role do you think God played in the miracle, in the creation of the Jewish state? Well, evidently a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> because we've beaten the odds. Uh, now, if you want me to question God, you know, based on experience, I could be stricken down, and I'm not going to take that risk. I think that there are reservoirs of faith uh, and culture that are very powerful in our people. Uh, you know, the founding fathers of Zionism may have been, uh, uh, they may not have been religious people, but they were cognizant of religion. They even knew what they were challenging. One thing they weren't, they weren't ignorant. That's the important thing. You know, you want to reject something, know what you're rejecting. The thing that I worry about is that we'd have a world where people don't even know what they're embracing and what they're rejecting. They should know our traditions. They're powerful, they brought us here. And I think that the unique power of the Jewish people and the unique power of the Jewish state is a combination of the fact that we, um, we had this really, um, primary internet system. You know, when we had the diaspora, we had, uh, you know, this, these scholars and sages in Yemen writing letters to uh, the sages in Spain, writing letters to the sages in Germany and so on, asking questions about law, truth, justice. And truth was never finite. It always expanded. You always built on what you knew into what you didn't know. And I think when the walls of the ghettos and the Enlightenment came, that same discipline was transferred to physics, mathematics, chemistry. Uh, it's a very powerful tradition, this constant questioning that the Jewish tradition uh, encourages. But I think that if that were it, we wouldn't be here and Israel wouldn't be here. I think it also is grounded in deep faith. Uh, sort of your feet are planted in the soil, 
and we came back to our ancient land. And at the same time, you know, the branches go up and up and up. And I think it's this unique combination of faith and reason that has made uh, the Jewish people so remarkable and the Jewish state so successful. And uh, God is watching over us as we speak. So one last question. <clears throat> one last question. Your father, Benzion Netanyahu, Benzion, was a very distinguished scholar of medieval Jew Spanish Jewry. He wrote about how even after a century of anti-Jewish violence, forced conversion, and the establishment of the Inquisition, many in the, Jew in the Spanish Jewish elite was stunned by the expulsion of 1492. Just as later on, Jews of Germany, my family, failed to recognize the potency of Hitler's rise. In your truly moving eulogy for your father, you said, and I quote, many times you told me that he who cannot understand the past cannot understand the future. You always told me that a necessary component for any living body, and a nation is a living body, is the ability to identify a danger in time, a quality that was lost to our people in exile." End of quote. Can this same inability to identify a danger in time be seen amongst Jews today anywhere around the world? With some Jews, yes. With other Jews, no. Uh, and it's important to make sure that you see danger, not in order to uh, celebrate it, but in order to thwart it. Uh, I think Israel has been able to do that uh, remarkably well. And I think today, if you, you know, if you look around at the Middle East, you know, it used to be asked at the beginning of the Arab Spring, will Israel survive? Nobody's asking that anymore. Many countries are asking, can we survive without Israel? That's an enormous change because Israel's power is rising very rapidly. And the way that you ensure that you can deal with potential dangers is by accumulating more power. There's a simple principle that I think is, is evident today. Uh, I think it was always evident. But in the Middle East and beyond, the weak don't survive. The strong survive. The strong and the smart survive. Uh, I'm sure many of you have read this, uh, uh, the remarkable books of uh, Will Durant, Story of Civilization. Well, believe it or not, I read them. But I didn't read his summation called The Lessons of History, which I think he wrote in around 1970. And it's 100-page it's book, every sentence is pregnant with wisdom. And uh, you want the good news or the bad news? Well, I'll give you the bad news first. Every time somebody asks me that, I say, give me the bad news first. <laughs> well, the bad news, if I have to sum up what Durant says, 
and I'm oversimplifying it, but I will. He says, numbers count. You know, in the flow of history, the big nations have an edge. They produce larger GDPs, larger GDPs produce larger militaries, that creates political power, power. And so small nations are at a disadvantage. Well, that's obvious enough. Then I think on page 17, he says, well, he sort of indicates there may be an exception with uh, you know, the young state of Israel, which can bring cultural forces to overcome the odds. Well, that was 1970. I think we've beaten the odds quite well with what he calls cultural forces. Uh, because we're able to multiply our power, and that's important. But that requires identifying the challenges and the opportunities, but identify the challenges first, because otherwise it'll be washed away. And I have no problem with that. I think that is the dynamic of life, of uh, competition, of struggle, of achievement, of alliances. That's how you make alliances. People make alliances with the strong. They seldom make alliances with the weak. And they certainly don't make peace with the weak. You make peace with the strong. And I think Israel is growing stronger by the day uh, in order to meet these dangers. You mentioned my father. And I'll, I'll close with uh, a story about my father. Uh, by the way, I never discussed politics with my father. I think only one time. Never. Ever. You know, I discussed history with him, but he never discussed politics. I mean, I remember, uh, I remember uh, we were sitting in Purim, and our young boy, Avner, who later became uh, number three, at 15, he became number three in the international Bible competition. Not bad, you know. Uh, <laughs> That comes from Sarah, believe me. <laughs> so we were talking, and, and my father, who had a, a tremendous curiosity, uh, <coughs> he said, you know, can you imagine, you know, in Persia, this great empire, the greatest empire in the ancient world at the time, and the king makes a Jew his number two? When that, that happened, and the eight-year-old uh, Avner, our son says, well, it happened twice. What's so unusual about that? <laughs> Joseph and Trotsky. <laughs> <laughs> I could have said Henry. <laughs> uh, that's not the story I was going to tell you. About. <laughs> so now I'm not eight years old, but I'm six years old. And one of uh, my early recollections of my father is that he's tilling the garden uh, outside our house in Jerusalem. And I'm asking him, Father, what are you doing? He says, here, come and help me. I'm planting these saplings, young trees. Um, take a hoe, help me dig an irrigation ditch, pull out the weeds, put some fertilizer, and pour some water, water the, the tree. And I did. And then a year later, I see him working in the garden exactly in the same spot. And I said, Father, what are you doing? He says, here, come and help me. Take a hoe, 
dig an irrigation ditch, pull out the weeds. And I said, but Father, we pulled out the weeds last year. He said, you have to keep pulling out the weeds. Otherwise, they'll overtake the garden. But look, he said, look, Bibi, look how this young sapling has grown. Today, these trees are 15 meters tall. That's the story of Israel. We planted our, our national tree, replanted it in our ancient soil, and look how our national tree has grown. And this is exactly what we're doing. We're pulling out the weeds of terror, the weeds of all the enemies, and we have to keep pulling. We cannot guarantee, and I don't know how to guarantee, the triumph of modernity over medievalism in uh, early medievalism in the Arab and Muslim world. But I have no doubt that ultimately modernity triumphs. I'm sure about that. I have no question about that. It will happen. But what we have to do is continue to grow our tree and continue to pull out the weeds. That's what I learned from my father. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I think you can see why Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been, God willing, will continue to be, the most consequential Prime Minister in the modern age of Israel and basically has influence beyond Israel, to influence people all over the world. And we're really proud of you. And I thank you for the time. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank you. Stay well. Stay well. Stay well. I think Sarah is here. Come on up. Ladies and Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the chairman of the Hudson Institute Board of Trustees, Sarah Mae Stern. Prime Minister Netanyahu, Roger, that was an extraordinary dialogue. Thank you. For New York, please sit down. I'm not going to talk for very long, so. Um, standing up isn't going to make me go a little faster. Um, we New Yorkers don't like listening. We like talking. But tonight, I think you could have heard a pen drop. That was just an amazing discussion. Roger, we asked you to engage in a dialogue with the Prime Minister because, as Ken alluded to, we knew that you let no one, no matter how important and consequential, off the hot seat when you asked your very well-researched and probing questions. Tonight was no different. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. Mr. Prime Minister, I've witnessed many people being grilled by Roger. I've had the uh, honor myself. No one has responded and answered the questions as well as you did this evening. Thank you. You should come to the Knesset. It makes good practice. <laughs> My Hebrew is not so good. Uh, I want to thank you tonight for giving detailed, thoughtful, and personal answers. You've enriched our understanding of the Mideast, of Israel, of your role, and 
of this particular moment in history and its relevance for history. So I thank you very much for that. I think everyone tonight feels privileged to have been part of this conversation. So it's been a great dialogue, but not unusual for Hudson. Our experts engage every day with world leaders and with policymakers to strengthen our mission, which is the mission of strengthening America in concert with our allies. First among those allies is Israel. As you reminded us tonight, and as you reminded the President yesterday, and I'm going to use your words, America has no greater friend than Israel. Our alliance has grown decade after decade. It's an unbreakable bond based on common values, buttressed by common interest, and bound by shared destiny. So it is with profound gratitude for the State of Israel that I am now honored to present you with the 2016 Herman Kahn Award. And don't worry, you don't have his girth. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, Hudson Institute bestows this award on you, Mr. Prime Minister, and I'm going to read what it says on the award for a lifetime of unparalleled service defending, transforming, and strengthening Israel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Beautiful. Very beautiful. Thank you. And very important. We thank you for all you do and continue to do. Thank you. That's great, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all.